Happy Sabbath, church. The Spirit of God is in this place, amen. If you can indulge me for a second. Um, I told myself I wasn't going to do this, but I feel compelled to do something that would help me feel a little bit more at home with my girls not here with me. Um, at our church in Princeton, we sing a song um, before we do our service. It's probably familiar to you, so I'm just going to ask you to sing a brief portion of that with me. Is that all right? Holy, holy, are you Lord God Almighty? Worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb, you are holy, holy. Are you Lord God Almighty? Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Sing it again. You're holy. You are holy. God, you are holy. You are high, you are lifted up, you are set apart. And we invite you into this space to do whatever it is you would do with us. We need a word from you in this moment, dear God. And I pray that you would quiet our hearts, quiet our voices, humble us, God so that you may be lifted up. Let nothing stand in the way of what you have to say to us this morning, not even the speaker. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. I bring you greetings, as I said earlier, from my church in Princeton, New Jersey, the Princeton Seventh-day Adventist Church, where my wife is our pastor, and I serve alongside of her there. Uh, she's actually traveling in Europe. She's in Milan, Italy for Fashion Week. So she's not only a pastor, but she could dress. <laughs> That's an important thing. If you were here for first service, all my jokes are the same. So don't expect different jokes. I see a couple of you laugh, on, laugh at the same time, please. They were funny then. They're still funny. <laughs> all right. I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, so she's traveling there, doing her thing, and um, so she sends her love. I got a call from your pastor, Pastor Todd Stout, um, amazing man of God and a good friend. Um, he called me yesterday, I think I was on the train headed into work, 
um, I commute from New Jersey into the city, and um, I got a voicemail from him, so I listened to the voicemail, and um, you know, he starts off with the re regular pleasantries, we hadn't talked in a little while, and um, he just kind of said kind of offhandedly, yeah man, so I'd love to have you speak uh, at, at Advent Hope, it'll be on February 24th, so yeah, if that works for you, let me know, and I thought in my head, wait a minute, Today is February 23rd. <laughs> February 24th is tomorrow. So, um, you know, I actually had been planning, since my wife is gone, I'd been planning to speak at our church in Princeton. Um, and so I just kind of said to God, well, God, if you want me to be here, um, work something out because, I mean, I, I want to help Pastor Todd out. And, you know, I started to realize that, you know, the whole pastoral team is gone at the one project. And he was telling me, you know, we've been leaning on the elders, they've been preaching a lot, and I, I want to give them a break, and so you're really like our only option, so please do it if you can't, but you're the only person who can, so yeah. And I was like, all right. So I say, God, if you want me to be here, work it out, and um, as it come to find out, I, I called one of our elders for our church, and he had been preparing as if he was going to speak today, so... He said, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll speak today and, you know, do what you have to do. So God kind of provided an outlet for me to be here. So I'm really glad to be with you. And I pray that um, God does something with this time that we have together. So I want to talk to you guys in the intro about a book that I just got done reading. It's called The Spirit Level. Have any of you guys ever heard of this book? Nobody had in the first service and nobody does in the second. Oh, there's one. Okay. That's my friend Wu. I think I might have told you about the book, Wu. I don't know. So, uh, so, okay. So it's this book, The Spirit Level. And the idea of this book, it focused on the 23 richest countries of the world, which have populations over 3 million, and which can provide adequate data for comparison. They also, for comparison's sake, looked at the 50 U.S. states. So the big idea in the book is that what matters in determining mortality and health in a society is less the overall wealth of that society. So of course, if you're following the political scene, uh, you heard Bernie Sanders say a lot of different times, the United States is the richest country in the history of the world. You know? So we have a lot of money. We, we, we're, we're the richest country ever. And so it's not, you know, the mortality and health of society is not determined by that, but it's actually decided more by how evenly that wealth is distributed. And the more equally wealth is distributed, the better the health of that society. So I'm going to show you a chart here. The authors of the book did something interesting. Uh, as you can see, um, this chart compares how much richer the richest 20%, so the top fifth of a country, is than the bottom 20%. So if you see up there, countries like Japan, they're the closest to being equal. And then you see us down here, the, the richest 20% is a, just under nine times richer than the poorest 20% of our country. And so the next chart is what's really probably gonna grab your attention. It's what grabbed mine and what kept me going through the book. They created a health and social problems index. And of course, as you see here, that index includes life expectancy, math and literacy, infant mortality, homicides, imprisonment, teenage births, trust, obesity, mental illness, which includes drug and alcohol addiction, and social mobility. 
So they looked at all of those factors, and as you see on this chart here at the bottom, this is ranking income inequality. So countries with low income inequality, the difference between the income of the rich and the poor are farther to the left, and countries where the gap is wider are farther to the right. And then on the index of health and social problems, better countries score lower this way, and worse countries are up here. And as you can see, the good old United States of America is the worst on all of these factors when looking at this index of health and social problems. Uh, uh, Richard Wilkinson, who was one of the authors of this book, gave a TED Talk, and here comes one more of those jokes, and he said in that TED Talk that if the American people want to pursue the American dream, they should move to Denmark. <laughs> and he, he's right when you start looking at these charts. So let's go through some of them. And he also looked at the 50 states. You see New York over here somewhere. <laughs> And they looked at the income inequality across states. And so, because a lot of people were saying, well, different countries behave differently. There's different cultures. There's different factors. So they said, okay, we'll look at one country, the U.S., the wealthiest country in the history of the world, and we'll rank them on the chart. And using the same scenarios, of course, there's a little bit more variance, but the general trend is the more unequal states in this country, maybe you see Louisiana and Mississippi up there, they score worse on this index of health and social problems within the United States. So let's look at some of the factors. Child well-being is better in more equal, rich countries. Again, USA being towards the, the end here. Levels of trust are higher in more equal, rich countries. Uh, they're, more, they're higher in more equal U.S. states. The mental illness is more, more prevalent in unequal countries. And I'm basically just going to point out where America is on all these charts so you know where we rank. Drug use is more common in unequal countries. Life expectancy is longer in more equal countries. So you say, see Japan over here, which is the most equal country. Life expectancy is by far the highest. The USA and Singapore are towards the bottom. Infant mortality rates are higher in more unequal countries. Mortality being worse here. More adults are obese, you probably knew that, in more un un unequal rich countries. You see us leading the charge there. Educational scores higher. More children drop out of high school in more unequal US states. This was kind of an alarming one to me. This is one of the strongest correlations they found, actually, in the book. Teenage birth rates higher in more unequal rich countries. Homicide rates are higher. Look at the US just way up here in comparison to these other rich countries. Rates of imprisonment, of course, are higher in more unequal countries, and this trend, this correlation is, is crazy. Um, rates of imprisonment, of course, again, and higher in more unequal U.S. states, and the red dots are states where the death penalty is still being used. So most of the states with these high incarceration rates are actually still instituting the death penalty. Social mobility, meaning the ability to move up the scale, is lower in more unequal countries. And so they come to this conclusion that the rich developed societies have reached a turning point in human history, and politics should now be about the quality of social relations and how we can develop harmonious and sustainable societies. So this book, as you can see, it really just kind of blew me away. And one of the more interesting you know, facts that came out of this book 
is that it's not just the poor that are affected at higher rates, it's also the rich in these countries. So they looked at the rich of these different rich countries and the rich in the US are performing worse in those different gradients than the rich in the Japan, for instance. So there seems to be no escape, even for those that are making more and are the wealthiest, be just simply because of this correlation between uh, their, their distance from the poorest in the country. So one of the first questions that I had when opening the book was why is inequality the factor that links all these health and social problems together? I mean, correlation does not necessarily prove causality, so how do we know that it is inequality itself that is causing or exacerbating these problems? The authors responded like this. They said, within countries, we know that all the components of our index of health and social problems are strongly related to social status. So the further down the social ladder, the more common they become. The new part of the picture is simply that if you stretch out the social status differences, all the problems related to social statuses become more common. Rather than postulating entirely new causal processes, we are therefore only providing a bit more information about the relationships that have always been recognized. So for example, violence is more common in more unequal societies where the status competition is always intensified because it is so often triggered by people feeling looked down on, disrespected, and humiliated. So what's the solution then as proposed by the authors? The authors say that sustainability needs greater equality. The key to achieving this is political will. The author suggests that countries need to create a sustained movement committed to do a better, to, committed, sorry, to a better society, creating the political will to make society more equal is more important than implementing a set of policies to reduce inequality. A society in which all citizens feel free to look each other in the eye can only come into being once those in the lower echelons feel more valued than at present. The authors argue that removal of economic impediments to feeling valued, such as low wages, low benefits, and low public spending on education will allow a flourishing of human potential. In the late 60s, there was a man by the name of Dr. King who understood this very philosophy. Just a year before his assassination at Southern Christian Leadership Conference Staff Retreat in May 1967, Dr. King said this, I think it is necessary for us to realize that we have moved from the era of civil rights into the era of human rights. When we see that there must be a radical redistribution of economic and political power, then we see that for the last 12 years, we have been in a reform movement that after Selma and the Voting Rights Bill, we moved into a new era, which must be an era of revolution. In short, we have moved into an era where we are called upon to raise certain basic questions about the whole society. Martin Luther King announced the Poor People's Campaign at a later staff retreat in November 1967, seeking a middle ground between riots on the one hand and timid supplications for justice on the other. 
King planned for an initial group of 2,000 poor people to descend on Washington, D.C., southern states, and other northern cities to meet with government officials to demand jobs, unemployment insurance, a fair minimum wage, and education for poor adults and children designed to improve their self-image and self-esteem. Now, almost 50 years later, the authors of The Spirit Level are seeking a similar revolution. Suggested to King by Marion Wright, who was then director of the NAACP's Legal Defense and Education Fund in Jackson, Mississippi, the Poor People's Campaign was seen by King as the next chapter in the struggle for genuine equality. Desegregation and the right to vote were essential, but King believed that African Americans and other minorities would never enter full citizenship until they had economic security. Through nonviolent direct action, King and SCLC hoped to focus the nation's attention on economic inequality and poverty. King told SCLC delegates at an early planning meeting, this is a highly significant event, describing the campaign as the beginning of a new cooperation, understanding, and a determination by poor people of all colors and backgrounds to assert and win their right to a decent life and respect for their culture and dignity. Dr. King strongly believed in the potential of the poor to come together to transform the whole of society. He knew that for the load of poverty to be lifted, the thinking and behavior of a critical mass of the American people would have to be changed. The first gathering of over 50 multiracial organizations that came together with the SCLC to join the Poor People's Campaign took place in Atlanta, Georgia in March 1968, just one month before King's assassination. Key leaders and organizations at this session included Tom Hayden of the Newark Community Union, Rice Tajarina of the Federal Alliance of New Mexico, John Lewis, who's the great politician of the Southern Regional Council, Miles Horton of the Highlander Center, Appalachian volunteers from Kentucky, welfare rights activists, California farm workers, and organized tenants. They all came together and collectively put together a three-pronged platform to be passed in the form of an economic bill of rights. One, 30 billion annual appropriation for a real war on poverty. Two, congressional passage of full employment and guaranteed income legislation, including a guaranteed annual wage. And three, construction of 500,000 low-cost housing units per year until slums were eliminated. Although King and the SCLC succeeded in creating a strong coalition of like-minded organizations, the message of the Poor People's Campaign did not ultimately reap the outcomes that they had hoped for. As I mentioned, and as we all know, King was ultimately assassinated on April 4, 1968, in Memphis, Tennessee. The trip he made right before that was actually to New Jersey. On March 27, 1968, King met with Oliver Lofton, who was then the director of Newark Legal Services. He was in town to promote the Poor People's Campaign, and he began to tell Lofton about how his anti-Vietnam War views, as well as the themes of the campaign, had incited the anger of President Lyndon Johnson. In a 2008 interview, Lofton recalled, Dr. King told me he had a meeting with LBJ where Lyndon Johnson had called him everything but a child of God. 
He then told Lofton after his trip to Memphis he was scheduled to come back to New Jersey, but then his voice trailed off and he said, I may not make it back. This conversation that King had with LBJ was indicative of a new perception of King in America. He was no longer the superstar civil rights leader whose dream had inspired us all to strive for a better country. King had become less and less revered by the mainstream media as he was now talking about slavery, slavery restitution, guaranteed housing, and other tenets of the Poor People's Campaign, as well as withdrawal from the Vietnam War. The media now question, get this, whether King was capable of leading this kind of campaign given his new anti-American views. He was seen now as a divisive figure who was incapable of bringing people together. His dream was now just that, nothing more than a dream. Ultimately, his assassination robbed him of the opportunity to prove those themes wrong. Although the Poor People's Campaign moved forward under the direction of Dr. Ralph, Ralph Abernathy, momentum was again lost when then-presidential candidate and strong campaign adv advocate Robert Kennedy was assassinated on June 6, 1968. Some small victories were gained, but the system overhaul that they were looking for never came to fruition. The spirit level maps out in depressing clarity the statistical proof that our country's refusal to embrace equality has led to damaging effects on all of us. These words of King spoken just before the launch of the campaign still ring out to us today when he said this, something is happening in our world. The masses of people are rising up and wherever they are assembled today, whether they are in Johannesburg, South Africa, Nairobi, Kenya, Accra, Ghana, New York City, Atlanta, Georgia, Jackson, Mississippi, or Memphis, Tennessee, the cry is always the same. We want to be free. Now, what does all of this mean in this great period of history? It means that we've got to stay together. We've got to stay together and maintain unity. Focusing in now on where we are today, I think that the question we have to ask ourselves is simply this. How do we create and maintain unity down here? I'm going to touch on some of the recent events that have been happening in our denomination that is centered around this question of unity. But before I do that, I want us to take some time and examine how Christ introduced unity when he walked this earth. The book of Matthew, as we know, the early part of the book describes Christ's genealogy and birth, the wise men, the escape to Egypt because of Herod's decree, John the Baptist preparing the way, and then Christ's baptism. In chapter 4, he is tempted in the wilderness after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. He then calls the disciples and starts ministering to great crowds and doing miracles. So by the end of chapter 4, Jesus is a pretty popular guy. He's doing miracles. He's, he's um, you know, impacting lives. Great crowds are following him. His ministry is really starting to take off. Then in chapter 5, he starts preaching the Sermon on the Mount. 
and everything about everyone's perception about him changes. One of the phrases Jesus repeats throughout the Sermon on the Mount is, you have heard that it was said, and he would follow that up by saying, but I say to you, you've heard that it was said, but this is what I'm saying. In this first sermon, he's setting a clear tone. I'm here to reorient your thinking. The things you've been taught previously are not adequate and sufficient for where I'm trying to take you. Again, I mean, just think about this. This is Jesus' first sermon. This is his first public explanation of who he is and what he came to do. I mean, it would be like me coming to Advent Hope today, most of you don't know me, and standing up here and saying, yeah, I've been following your series on the early church in Acts. Uh, yeah, I, you know, they're archived online. I saw what Pastor Todd's been saying to you. Forget all of that. All of that's garbage. This is what I'm saying to you. I'm the spiritual authority for you to follow. That'd be crazy. Like, I would never do that to Pastor Todd. I might do that to Kyle, though. <laughs> that was another old joke from the first service. <laughs> Make sure you have your Bible out when Kyle's preaching. <laughs> now, he's my friend. I'm, I'm ribbing him. We went to school together. That's why I'm saying that. Kyle's a great guy. I love him. Um, but but that just be crazy. Just think about it. I mean, Jesus just came through and said, this whole system that you guys have learned your entire life, I've heard that. Yeah, that's nice. But this is what I'm saying. Follow this. Forget about all of that. It, it makes everything that they'd learned to that point pretty much worthless, or so they thought. Jesus was trying to tell them that this thing is deeper than rules, deeper than regulations, and comparing yourselves to one another to see who the holiest is in your own eyes. I am here to establish a new kingdom. I mean, he starts off with the Beatitudes, which, you know, they all sound great in theory, but I'm pretty sure after we finished even just saying the Beatitudes, they were all confused. Like, what is this guy talking about? About this blessed stuff. What does that even mean? He then talks about himself being the fulfillment of the law. He breaks down anger, lust, divorce, oaths, revenge, loving your enemies, and giving to the poor. He teaches them how to pray. Again, basically saying, you guys haven't even been praying right. This is how you should pray. Forget all of that. Fasting, storing treasures in heaven, not being anxious, no judging others. I mean, the list goes on and on. All these different concepts are like a week of prayer in themselves, and he's standing on this mountain breaking everything down in three chapters. All these different topics. By the end of the sermon, at the conclusion of chapter 7, the Bible says in verse 28, and I'm going to be reading from the Amplified Version. Feel free to follow along in whatever version you have. When Jesus had finished speaking these words on the mountain, the crowds were astonished and overwhelmed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority to teach entirely of his own volition and not as their scribes, who relied on others to confirm their authority. I'm sure many people in the crowd that day were thinking, who in the world does this guy think he is? I mean, I heard he might have turned some water to wine. No, man, that's not real. That was grape juice. It wasn't wine. That's not real. Oh, yeah, well, no, I heard that there was some voice that spoke during his baptism. I didn't hear that. I was there. You're hearing things. What are you talking about? That's who Jesus was at that point. He 
We're, we read the Sermon on the Mount, and we're thinking about our crucified and risen Savior, and we're just basking in the beauty of his message. They're looking at this guy who was a carpenter's son with interesting questions around his birth, and he's telling them, you have heard, but this is what I say. Listen to me. Who does he think he is? Do you know me, Jesus? Do you know what I've learned? Do you know who my family is? I've been sitting in this pew at Advent Hope for 55 years. Who are you? And you're going to come here and tell me everything I've learned is worth nothing? And I have to listen to you? Who do you think you are? That was the reception that a lot of them had in response to what we see as this beautiful Sermon on the Mount. We love it. But we have to think about who he was speaking to and how they received it and what that meant for what Jesus was trying to do from that point forward. There were crosshairs on his back. It wasn't the I have a dream moment like King that we see on YouTube and we love. It was the anti-American views and, the, and the, it was the, the threat to the political structure that they had created. That's what Jesus was up against. Keep that in mind as we keep going. Jesus was setting the tone for how he would communicate his message throughout his ministry. Later on in the book of Matthew in chapter 13, Jesus is speaking to another crowd on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And as was his custom, he started using these parables again. But this time he introduces a new concept to them which I want us to focus on together for a few more moments, and then I'm going to sit down. The concept he introduced there is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. One of the phrases that we will see Jesus repeat here a lot as a prelude to some confusing analogy or parable is the kingdom of heaven is like dot, dot, dot. There's a bunch of different examples in there, and we don't have enough time to figure out what in the world Jesus was trying to say there. That's a whole other sermon. But the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. The disciples, seemingly fed up with Christ's use of parables, ask him, starting in verse 10 of chapter 13, why do you speak to the crowds in parables? I mean, they just got right to the point. Like, hey, man, why do you do this? Like, we barely understand what you're saying. Why are you speaking to these big crowds in parables? Jesus replied to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has spiritual wisdom because he is receptive to God's word, to him more will be given, and he will be richly and abundantly supplied. But whoever does not have spiritual wisdom because he or she has devalued God's word, even what he has will be taken away from him. This is the reason I speak to the crowds in parables, Because while having the power of seeing, they do not yet see. And while having the power of hearing, they do not yet hear, nor do they understand and grasp spiritual things. Skipping down to verse 16. But blessed, spiritually aware, and favored by God, amen, are your eyes, because they see. And your ears, because they hear. I assure you and most solemnly say to you, Pay attention to that most solemnly say to you. That's a, that's a key term in our discussion. 
Many prophets and righteous men who were honorable and in right standing with God longed to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus points out to them here in verse 17 how privileged they are to be in his presence. All of the prophets, authors, and righteous men before them had longed to see what they were seeing and hear what they were hearing, but didn't. The message here is focused towards his disciples whose eyes had begun to be opened at this point to who he was. The onlookers in the crowd were not yet there, so presenting some deep spiritual concepts would not hold much meaning to them at that time. Due to the fact that the, that the, that the disciples, excuse me, were in, when, uh, when the, <laughs> were in relationship with him, they held the key to unlocking these seemingly hidden truths. The message to us today, by God's grace, his followers, is that the closer we get to Jesus, the easier it is to understand what it means to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. Amen? One of the most important books ever written on the kingdom of heaven is Leo, Leo Tolstoy's The Kingdom of God is Within You. In it, Tolstoy advances the idea of taking the Sermon on the Mount seriously for exactly what it says and living out the nonviolent principles of the character of God for the advancement of God's kingdom in human hearts on earth. Another remarkable book on the topic is When God Became King by N.T. Wright. Wright says that kingship looks different when God does it than when we see in human history when men become kings. God became king in the person of Christ by humbling himself in serving humanity to the point of giving his life in self-sacrificing death rather than by exercising power over others. Dr. King said it best, unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in our reality. Unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in our reality. But Christ's discussion on the kingdom of heaven throughout the book of Matthew culminates and becomes crystal clear in Matthew chapter 19. And I want you to turn with me there. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 13, it says there, then children were brought to see Jesus so that he might place his hands on them for a blessing and pray. But the disciples reprimanded them. But he said, leave the children alone and do not forbid them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After placing his hands on them for a blessing, he went on from there. The kingdom of heaven is all-inclusive. I'm going to say that again. The kingdom of heaven is all-inclusive, meaning everyone finds their true eternal value in this new kingdom. His followers didn't think that the children were worthy of being in Christ's presence, and he says, don't reprimand them. He's saying to us as his followers, whoever comes into this space don't reprimand them because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. It's for them, not just for you. We have to remember that. There are no distinctions or hierarchy among us in Christ's kingdom. 
We continue on starting in verse 16 and we, and we find a familiar story. Someone came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what essentially good thing shall I do to obtain eternal life? That is eternal salvation in the Messiah's kingdom. Jesus answered, Why are you asking me about what is essentially good? There is only one who is essentially good. But if you wish to enter into eternal life, keep the commandments. He then asked Jesus, which commandments? Jesus answered, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother and love your neighbor as yourself. That is, unselfishly seek the best or higher good for others. The young man said to him, I have kept all these things from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus answered him, if you wish to be perfect, that is, have the spiritual maturity that, accomp that accompanies godly character with no moral or ethical deficiencies, go and sell what you have and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me, becoming my disciple, believing and trusting in me, and walking the same path of life that I walk. But when the young man heard this, he left grieving and distressed. For he owned much property and had many possessions, which he treasured more than his relationship with God. Jesus said to his disciples, I assure you and most solemnly say to you, there's that most solemnly say to you again, it is difficult for a rich man who clings to possessions and status as security to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man who places his faith in wealth and status to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were completely astonished and bewildered, saying, then who can be saved from the wrath of God? But Jesus looked at them and said, with people, as far as it depends on them, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The amount of wealth that the rich young ruler had is not what prevented him from entering into the kingdom of heaven. It was the fact that he clung to his possessions and status as security. He placed his faith in wealth and status as opposed to trusting in Jesus and doing what he required of him in order to follow him. He treasured his property and possessions more than his relationship with God. What he really seemed to be after was a cosign from Christ that he had made himself better and more acceptable than anyone else who was following Jesus. Becoming Christ's disciple, believing and trusting in him, and walking the same path of life Christ was walking was not an adequate reward for him. He craved special status and recognition. Whether it's the current situation we find ourselves in now, or the poor people's campaign that failed, or the failure of the rich young ruler, the common thread is the love of status and money above our love for God. It's the common thread throughout human history. It's this desire to make ourselves better than others for the betterment of ourselves, not knowing, as the spirit level has pointed out, that we're actually killing ourselves while trying 
to accumulate and achieve more and more and more. We don't understand this concept of his kingdom. We want the special status and recognition that the rich young ruler had. I'm preaching this to myself this morning. What you have will not prevent you from entering into this new kingdom reality until those things that you have become indispensable to your identity. At that point, you can no longer enjoy Christ's kingdom. But if we submit ourselves to God completely, regardless of how difficult what God is requiring us to give up appears to be to give up, we can claim his declaration that with God, all things are possible. It is through that submission that we as individuals and as a community of faith can reach a kingdom level of commitment to the cause of Christ. If we do so, what then will we have to look forward to? Then Peter answered him in verse 27 saying, look, Jesus, we have given up everything and followed you becoming your disciples and accepting you as teacher and Lord. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, I assure you, and again, most solemnly say to you, in the renewal, that is the messianic, messianic restoration and regeneration of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, becoming my disciples, will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone, and now he's speaking about us, who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake, will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first in this world will be last in the world to come. And the last first. Our kingdom level reward should motivate us to live lives that are poured out for others so that they may know this gospel that has so gripped and changed us. You know, for years growing up in the Adventist church, I've heard sermon after sermon on the importance of sound doctrine. Any of you ever heard a sermon like that before? Okay, a couple people. And generally, those sermons contain a lot of patting ourselves on the back due to the depth of knowledge the Spirit has blessed our denomination with. What we sometimes have failed to realize in our discourse is that the only sound doctrine that is presented throughout the Bible is solely and completely the doctrine of Jesus Christ. When we adopt the doctrine of Christ, meaning that we are Christ-centered in everything we believe, say, and do, we better understand our role in this world that so desperately needs him. We better embrace our calling to be the hands and feet of Jesus, actively involved in meeting the needs that we see around us. In the midst of everything we encounter in this world, the racial tension, our political climate, natural disasters, economic inequality, we are called to have an active participatory role in speaking up for the voiceless and seeking justice for the oppressed. We are called to address the present condition of our world as well as viewing things in light of the future reality of the coming of Christ. 
We aren't called to merely see these socio-political issues as separate and secular and merely use them as a prophetic tool to point to the soon coming of Christ. The reality of Christ's coming should give us an urgency and commitment to speak out and fight for a resolution of these issues until we see him face to face. Towards the end of Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, as is recorded in John 17 and was read earlier, Jesus makes it clear what his desire for us, by God's grace, residents of his kingdom, is. I do not pray that these alone, meaning his followers at the time, I do not pray for these alone. It is not for their sake only that I make this request, but also for all those who ever will believe and trust in me through their message that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us so that the world may believe without any doubt that you sent me. He's requesting that we model the kind of unity that you've been dialoguing about during your series on the early church in Acts. A Holy Spirit-infused body of believers who had no distinction among them, totally sold out for the cause of Christ, every need amongst them met, no social status, pressures, or competition. They reached the kingdom level here on earth, and by God's grace, we can too. After one Holy Spirit-infused sermon from Peter, this was the description of their body, starting in verse 44 of, of Acts chapter 2. And all those who had believed in Jesus as Savior were together, and had all things in common, considering their possessions to belong to the group as a whole. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing the proceeds with all the other believer, believers as anyone had need. Day after day, they met in the temple area, continuing with one mind and breaking bread in various private homes. They were eating their meals together with joy and generous hearts, praising God continually and having favor with all the people. And the Lord kept adding to their number daily those who were being saved. The question we must ask ourselves today is, how many sermons is it going to take for us to get it? How many sermons is it going to take? I want to close by talking to you about something that has been rippling through our Adventist denomination community. I'm sure you maybe have heard about it or have seen it. Um, a group of Andrew students made a video requesting that the university make a formal apology for the systemic racism that had been promulgated by that university for over 100 years. And that moment, that video, struck me particularly, number one, because I'm a graduate of Andrews, but also because I moved to Andrews when I was in the fifth or sixth grade. In 1998, my dad was hired to be the administrative chaplain of Andrews, and he served there up until about two years ago. And there were several times throughout our journey there that my dad, being one of the only black members of, fa of a faculty or staff on campus, 
was pushing and striving for this conversation to happen. And he would schedule these events. And I remember growing up, a lot of times after church, he would schedule these events and it'd be a, a discussion. And I know, I know about Advent Hope, so if you guys have a discussion on race, this place would be packed. But he would schedule these discussions on campus and the people that would be there would be the people that planned the discussion. And nobody else would be there. And I just remember vividly day after day seeing the pain in his eyes because of that and the amounts of times that he wanted to quit because he didn't think that anything would ever happen. So that video got made last Saturday afternoon. It was released. It started going viral. And things just started happening in my life even um, and in my dad's life that really confirm with me, and this is what I want to leave you with, that God is in the midst of this. What we're going through as a church right now, God is orchestrating it. And because of that, we can be confident in where we're going. Amen? The video was released, and I got a text message from a friend of mine who is a pastor of a large Christian church, actually right down the street from me in Plainsboro, New Jersey, the church is called Princeton Alliance Church. Uh, big, non-denominational, it's a non-Adventist church, but uh, my wife and I are friends of him, and he sent me a text message, and he said, hey, Michael, uh, this coming week, weekend, which will be tomorrow, we're starting a series on racial reconciliation. I want you to be there. Will you come? And I was like, whoa. And I started talking to him about what was happening at my alma mater, at Andrews, and, and this discussion kind of stirring up, and he reminded me of a discussion that we had had during the summer about this very issue and how he'd been struggling to get their, uh, their staff to commit to this process and they just committed to it and it's starting tomorrow. And so he wanted me to be there and I was just like, wow, God is doing something here. The next thing that happened was the morning of the chapel that Andrews had this past week in which they released their apology video which was beautiful. If you haven't seen it, I encourage you to watch it. But I was speaking to uh, a friend of mine, Jose Bourget, who's one of the chaplains at Andrews now, and we were talking about the events of the week, and um, we were talking about actually a blog that was written by Dr. Dwight Nelson, who's the pastor of the church on campus there at PMC. Um, he released a blog talking about his white privilege. It was very powerful. Um, I was very surprised that he talked about that topic, given the history of the area and what I know of these discussions. And so Jose kind of offhandedly said to me, you know what, you should send a note to Pastor Dwight. I think he'd appreciate hearing from you and knowing that you appreciated his blog. I think he'd like that. And I kind of said, okay, that's fine. And I kind of went around about my day. This is maybe Thursday around 11. And so they had the chapel at 11.30, and I watched it. It was beautiful. And I had some meetings that I was doing and some other things that were happening. And it was maybe around 3 p.m., God kind of reminded me of what Jose said. You should, you should reach out to Pastor Dwight. And I'm not particularly close to Pastor Dwight. I know him. Our families know each other. Um, I felt like it'd be kind of awkward for me to just email him out the blue. I didn't even think he'd read it. So... I sit down and I start typing, and I don't know if you've ever started writing or typing something, but you start saying things that you know aren't coming from you. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. And I'm just writing things out, 
And in the subject heading of the email, I titled the, the email, Don't Hold Back. Don't Hold Back. And throughout the course of the email, I was very presumptuous. I was saying, you know, when you speak about this topic this Sabbath, don't hold back. God has a message for you. Deliver it. And I hit send, and I was like, wait a minute, what did I just say? <laughs> so I go into my sent messages, and I read what I said, and I was like, oh, that was a little strong. I don't know if I should have worded it like that, but it was sent, so uh, it is what it is. Later that evening, and I'm closing now, um, I received a phone call, and it was from an unsaved number. Didn't know who it was, so I didn't pick it up. That could be a bill collector. I don't pick those up. I'll let that go to voicemail, and that's what you should do. <laughs> and I listened to the voicemail right after, and... It was a familiar voice. It was Pastor Nelson. And uh, he just said, hey, you know, hey, Michael, if you guys know, hey, Michael, how's it going? Uh, you know, I don't know if you're available. Call me back. Call me back. Got to call me back. So I was like, okay. So I called Pastor Dwight back, and he begins to tell me that right after they had their chapel, he was reading over a sermon that was already written. It was about a series they were doing, um, and he was reviewing it, and he said, I felt like God was telling me I needed to talk about this topic. But I didn't know what to say. I, I didn't know how I should approach it. And so I said to God, okay, I'm going to go about my day, and I'll come back to this. So he came back to his notes around 3 o'clock, and he prayed and said, God, if you want me to speak about this topic this Sabbath, I need you to send me a message in the next 30 minutes. And if you send me that message, then I'll talk about everything. I'll hold nothing back. And he prayed, and he looked at his phone, no phone call, no text, opened up his email, which he said he hadn't read in a couple weeks, and refreshed his mailbox. And at the top of the mailbox was the email I sent him, and it said, don't hold back. And he said, before I even read the message, I just started writing notes. I already knew what I had to do. And so right now, he's preaching a sermon at Andrews in which he's systematically talking about his journey through his privilege and the responsibility of their predominantly white congregation to embrace the black students on campus and pursue healing. I don't share that to pump myself up because I had no clue what I said. It was all God. But that confirmed to me that God is in the midst of this. And what he said to me was that, Michael, as much as I know you care about this issue, as, as passionate as you are about racial reconciliation, I'm way more passionate about it than you are. I know what I'm doing. I have you in the palm of my hand, and these things matter to me. You guys are going to need to figure this thing out down here. I'm not going to come down here and just, you know, wave a wand and bring you all to heaven and make everything better. It's going to have to get fixed down here together. And I know you guys understand that. I know you guys in this congregation are fighting for that. But I just want to implore you to just be available. You never know when God's going to use you, what he's going to say, how he's going to say it, what reason he's saying it for. There's somebody waiting to hear from you in your context, wherever you are, on your job, at your school, in your household, at the dinner table, 
You guys sang this beautiful song about let our table, let us be like a table spread, you know, setting aside the status conversations and power. It's not about any of that. The kingdom of heaven is for all of you. And I'm looking forward to that day when we sit at that table that no man can number how many people are sitting at that table and we're all sitting there talking about how God overcame. Amen? Amen. And that we can look together as brothers and sisters and the people of God and these kingdom-level, gospel-centered Christians that poured ourselves out for the cause of Christ. I want to be in that number. Do you? Just raise your hand with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for what it is you are doing with us and through us and for us. God, we don't understand even the depths of what you understand. You see everything. And I pray, God, that you would just help us to be available. Do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Allow us to truly pour ourselves out to be used however you choose to use us. And in the end, we will be sure to give you the praise and you the glory as you make us one, as you and your Father are one. In the name of Jesus, amen.